Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 146. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, happy to be joined by Whitney Bragagnolo. Whitney, how are you doing? Hi, thank you for having me. I guess all right, despite the circumstances. Yeah. Are you guys all locked down there where you are? Currently, I am between uh, Spain and the Netherlands, and we are pretty open for business. We don't wear masks. There's no kind of curfews or anything, but that can change at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I used to, earlier in the pandemic, I would kind of start these episodes making small talk and asking people, what's the the pandemic situation like on your end? Yeah. But the problem is it just changes so fast that by the time this episode goes live, the situation will be quite different again. I mean, where where we're at right now in British Columbia, Canada, we're back to masks indoors. They're trying to figure out a vaccine passport system. So, I mean, progress is being made. I'm I'm hoping that there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel here. But of course, the one big factor is that children under 12 still can't get vaccinated. And there's going to be a lot of spread if they can't sort that situation out. So I, I'm kind of patiently waiting to see what we're going to do with my daughter and how we're going to how we're going to fix this situation. But I am I was hoping 2021 would be the year everything opens back up again. But you know what? Let's wait for 2022, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I mean, I guess the one good thing, I mean, I've been following what's going on in Canada as I'm, I'm Canadian, but you know, we have a very high vaccination rate in the Netherlands. It's one of the top countries. So that at least is in our favor. But that's not the same for everyone around us. And obviously everything in Europe is so close. So that poses an mm-hmm. interesting challenge. Yeah. I mean, the challenge that I found is I kind of run in a lot of different circles in my life. I work technology during the day. I do jujitsu during my free time. And what I have found is that the attitudes in those circles could not be more different (laughs) during the day. You you know, when I go to the office, the the vaccine support and vaccine passport rate is like 100 percent, including myself. I'm very much on board with getting this thing over with. But in the jujitsu world, there is massive, massive resistance to vaccination and to vaccine passports. And it's just it's interesting living in these two different worlds where the opinions are completely different. uh, It's definitely eye opening because I can see how I can see how people get so sucked into their own world where everyone I think that when you see things like vaccine resistance, they often come in pockets and there's small communities of people where just the resistance is very high. And I feel like we live in one of those communities uh, when we do grappling. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with the the, the, this situation and different people and their perspectives and what's going on. Like, I mean, people here are watching the news very closely as to what's going on in Canada and a few other countries that are, 
in the midst of making some pretty powerful changes that are obviously putting people in a conflicting situation on on how they feel and and what that means for their rights and what that means for their health and safety. So it's uh, it's interesting time we're heading into. Yeah. While I have this topic open, something I've been meaning to bring up for a while, if anyone out there is listening and hasn't had their shot yet for whatever reason, feel free to shoot me a message, DM me on Instagram, Facebook and email, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about it and share my thoughts on the situation and hear your thoughts on the situation. I, I won't be an asshole about the thing, but if you haven't had your shot yet, I would love to talk about that with you and just try to convince you that maybe it's worthwhile doing and I'm happy to hear out your thoughts too. So please do shoot me a message if you're on the fence or haven't had the shot yet. Anyway, there's the end of my announcement. With that said, <laughs> we've already pissed off the community in one way. Let's piss off the community in another way now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I will add uh, onto your onto your Vancouver uh, comment. Another Vancouverite is also quite willing to speak and listen to people. That's, uh, you know, Kesting's been putting out a lot of I think good stuff. Yeah. And I know don't know how it's been received, but it's nice that there are people who are kind of willing to like talk and listen and try to educate in a, you know, a, in a not so confrontational way, you know? So I think that's good. Yeah. Well, with that said, let's give you an introduction here because you have a very specific background that makes you, I think, uniquely qualified to talk about what we want to qualify and talk about here today. <laughs> so with that said, Whitney, floor is yours. Tell us who you are. So thank you. I am a sport integrity risk and governance consultant, and I'm currently residing in the Netherlands. I am actually from Vancouver, though. So I have a background in law enforcement and in the private sector, and I hold a master's degree in sport ethics and integrity. Currently, I'm doing some PhD research in sport governance, leadership, and integrity development. And I work with the Sports Ethics Examiner, which is an organization who helps to try to make these ethical dilemmas more digestible for the masses. A lot of these topics are kind of the solutions and topics and problems are buried in academia. And the journalism, the mainstream journalism kind of doesn't really give the big picture. And we, we believe that these topics should be accessible to everyone. And yeah, I'm also invested very much into improving the ethical landscape of jiu-jitsu itself because I have been involved in the sport since 2010. So that's, a, that's Whitney in a nutshell. <laughs> well, with that said, let's talk then about sport governance and governing bodies. We have been embroiled in just kind of like a nonstop, never ending a slew of debacles and scandals. And they're not all just about the recent stuff. Going back for a long ways, PED use in jiu-jitsu has been a problem since basically time immemorial in the sport. We've had issues with ethical behavior of some of the key players in the sport. We, of course, have had the, the massive sexual abuse allegations and scandals that have blown the doors off the community in the last few months. And I don't see any end to all of this. And this kind of leaves a very sour note in the mouths of a lot of the people like myself who have been doing this sport for a long time, because after you've been doing the sport for so long and you get that black belt, you're kind of looked at as an ambassador of the community. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to feel now that I am I am an ambassador for a community that does not represent my values. Yeah, you know, I absolutely 
I do not advocate for PED use. I do not advocate for the physical abuse of men or women. I do not advocate for harassment or just general lack of integrity. And but yet that is so rampant in this sport. And I think a big part of that is just the the immaturity of the sport. And and by immaturity, I mean, it is ultimately a very young sport Mm -hmm. and we don't have a very sophisticated governance structure set up like you would see in other sports. So with that said, I would love to get your thoughts on the situation. Um, I mean, I know that you study more than just the jiu-jitsu landscape. So I would love to get your assessment of the state of the union when it comes to jiu-jitsu sports governance in 2021. I mean, all of the issues that we have in sports, so we can look at doping, match fixing. We look at the situation that's unfolding around sexual abuse and harassment. They exist in all, all of our sports, but there is something particular within jiu-jitsu that causes some challenges. And, and I think it's definitely important that that we kind of bring to air what are the barriers today that are keeping us from moving forward in our sport and what are the solutions that we can do as gym owners, as athletes, as ambassadors like yourself to maintain the legacy of jiu-jitsu in a positive light, right? With regards to what's going on with the sexual harassment and and abuse without even diving into academia just going on anecdotal evidence i'm confident in saying that in circumstances of harassment abuse and sextortion that sextortion is the abuse of power to obtain a sexual benefit or advantage so that these things have personally impacted nearly every woman who participates in sport sport not just jiu-jitsu, in sport. So either personally or in her immediate circle, like digest that for a moment. That is very heavy. And, you know, the stories that are unfolding in jiu-jitsu, like you said, exactly, they are not the first stories, they're not the first victims and survivors. Those of us who have been in the jiu-jitsu circle for some time know it's been happening for a very long time. Uh, It's very disappointing, but... It's also a very different time. And I mean that in a positive way. And this is maybe a perspective that people haven't kind of considered yet. This generation, so the generation Y and Z, I won't say which one I'm a part of. They're very invested into sport integrity and very invested into sport ethics without even maybe knowing what that means. Basically, people want better and they know they deserve better. And that's something to not take lightly. These generations are key sport stakeholders. So what does that mean? We make up the athletes. That's the active ones, the newly retired ones, the future ones. We make up the current fans and supporters and parents looking for sports for our kids. We are heading into higher levels of sport management or we already are there. We have more spending power and longer spending power than anyone before us. So earning our loyalty will get businesses a long way. And that's been proven more and more every year as these kind of things unfold. It's a huge risk to your business, to your sport, to your organization. If you don't take these things, these threats and circumstances seriously in the wider sport industry, there has been some progress in good governance to include more athlete input, 
But what's happening now, we're seeing it in jiu-jitsu, is these stakeholders are taking action into their own hands. Like prior to social media, we didn't have that power. So people are banding together now and naming and shaming and, you know, taking a knee. And they're not wild demands. Accessibility, competition, respect, equality, excellence. You know, these are some of the values and goals and commitments of sport in a social practice. Like these are reasons why we, we like to do sport, things that we expect from it. These are things that put sport sports like jiu-jitsu on a well-deserved pedestal in society. But many people are still willing to gamble with these kinds of integrity issues like we're seeing in jiu-jitsu. That sentiment that I've heard you talk about in your podcast and I've seen it online, well, it won't happen to us, not our gym, not this city. You know, that approach is an approach destined for failure. And you said it yourself, this airing of sexual abuse in jiu-jitsu emphasizes such a huge vulnerability in our sport. The vulnerability is being unable to promote the sport and its core values genuinely. What's happening now does not represent you or I or many people who are practicing. And and all the good of jiu-jitsu is being currently jeopardized by harmful actions which are being allowed to go on without any recourse. And it's really important for the reputation of jiu-jitsu as a trustworthy place, the ability of the organizations and clubs to consistently meet those values and expectations. Because if you don't, if you, if you don't meet these promises of a safe space, a positive space, an accessible space, and these type of acts continue to come to the surface, the message you send is you don't see the real threat to the community or to your business you don't understand it, you don't care about it, or you don't know how to handle it. And those are all bad, bad looks to have. So aside from just wanting to, to, to be a better leader, to be a more diligent leader or an ethical leader, by preparing for these risks and looking at these threats and addressing them and taking them seriously, businesses can also position themselves to capture market opportunity. So if you're not doing it for ethics and you're not doing it for the good of the community, look at it from a business perspective. Like in other industries, how you maintain and improve and manage your risks and threats makes an organization a better investment, a better pick over the people who who cannot or do not. So a lot of people think, it's a risk to come forward or to support someone or to pivot your business. But what they should be focusing on is not that talking about these things is a risk. It's an opportunity. It is a massive opportunity, safety-wise, community-wise, financially-wise, reputation-wise. Think about what that means for your school, for your members, for your brand, for your business. That's no risk at all. Integrity is a very special leverage that you can have over your competition. It pressures others in the market to do better. And the people that do the work early today will benefit by being early to the game. And that means a better product for everyone, a safer product, and doing the jiu-jitsu legacy good. The numbers don't lie, man. A huge chunk of women and people have spoken. They are unhappy and they are connected more than ever before and they're paying attention. People want to see are you active when it comes to integrity? People want action and transparency, and they're looking for the good leaders. The biggest source of catastrophe for gyms 
in the next six months, 12 months, will be their shortcomings and how they handle a situation. Because if they don't align better with jiu-jitsu values and the expectations to uphold and promote and protect their members and protect integrity and have it implemented and be seen to be implemented, these people are going to go. They're going to go to who's offering it. So are you contributing to change or are you contributing to just this like complacency? That was really long. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I also think really insightful. And this echoes something that I actually spoke to Jeff Shaw about, the head instructor at Bellingham BJJ. We're in the process of recording a premium series for BJJ Mental Models Premium about how to create gym culture. Yes. His gym is especially known for being a culture first gym. And one of the brilliant points that Jeff made is that you need to prioritize getting your culture right from the get-go because clarifying and enforcing culture at the beginning is going to save you a lot of downstream problems at the end. And I think we see this in a lot of the gyms that have been rocked with scandal recently. The main problem that they've had is that they failed to enforce or in some cases actively tried to suppress the scandals that were going on. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they allowed bad behavior to propagate and it wound up blowing up in their faces a hundred times worse than if they had just been very clear about their code of conduct at the beginning and just enforced it right away. I mean, if, if Cyborg, for example, had a code of conduct that he enforced, if a complaint was brought to him and he immediately took action and removed that person from the gym he would have actually come out of this with a reputation better than he went in because people would have been impressed by the way that he responded. But instead, he waited for the problem. He tried to suppress it, basically, and tried to pretend it didn't exist and mm -hmm. just hoped it would resolve itself on the on its own. And that is not the behavior of a leader. No. So what winds up happening is by failing to take early action, you wind up creating a situation that is far, far worse for you as the owner and instructor than if you had just done the right thing from the get-go. And I think most people think, well, this could never happen to me. My, gr my group of people is a, is a great team. It's a great group. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, it's a great group that you know of. <laughs> One thing I've learned from, from jujitsu and from life is that sometimes people might appear like wonderful people to you, but just because they're great to you doesn't mean they're great to anyone else. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, offenders are very two-faced in their behavior, and the way that they treat you is not the way that they might treat potential victims. So I see this a lot where someone will be accused of something, and people will immediately rally to that person's defense and say, you know, this this guy's a great guy. I've known him for years and he's always been lovely and nice to me. Well, look, he's been lovely and nice to you. <laughs> that doesn't mm -hmm. mean he's been lovely and nice to all of the people that he potentially abused. People can be very two-faced and duplicitous if it serves them. And that that is something that I think we all have to understand when these accusations come up, especially if it's against someone that you know and you love very well. You have to resist that initial urge to defend them before you've even seen the evidence one way or the other. I think that is a very big problem in the jiu-jitsu community is that we don't proactively enforce the culture and enforce good practices. We wait until the situation is blown up beyond repair, and then we release these garbage statements on Instagram to try to make good on it, right? It would be much better if, like any other company in the world, we had policies for this kind of stuff. The people on the team really believed that action would be taken <laughs> if there's an issue, which I think is another big part of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that we need to, to see that change. Now, what I would ask you is, 
to what extent is it really realistic to put that burden on the gym owners and the instructors? To what extent do we need a solid governing body that can actually enforce all of this for us? Is it realistic to expect that gym owners will across the, the world will all independently establish these values? Or do we need a governing body like a lot of bigger sports have? Well, very good question. And I will say that it's not only the responsibility of the gym owners, it's everyone's responsibility. Integrity is a social duty. So in regards to good governance in sport, yeah, the jiu-jitsu situation, I think I'll just explain a little bit what good governance is for people who might not know. Good governance is just a set of principles and rules and regulations that attempt to ensure sports and sport organizations are run in a proper an ethical manner. There was a time when sport was not the money-making industry that it is today. It was just run by volunteers and played by a bunch of hobbyists. And a lot of these organizations that ran events in sports were nonprofits. And to the surprise of many, that title still exists today. So many sport organizations and international federations like FIFA are still nonprofit or non-governmental organization. So what that means is, and the problem with that is that it allows these organizations to operate without any oversight or any interference. So for the most part, no one is subject to any national laws, international laws that govern normal business practices, just like you said. So what that led to is over the last decade, we've kind of seen scandal after scandal in sport, various sports, and in sport leadership. And basically what was agreed was that sport organizations lacked the ability to be able to prevent and respond to integrity threats. So that's kind of where good governance came in. There was a scandal in the early 90s, and that pushed the demand for a better oversight in these issues because sport is a huge pillar for human and social development. And if we don't address them with diligence, they will continue to negatively impact sport and make it an unethical place. So how does it work, good governance in jiu-jitsu? Most sports have a pyramid structure where you have the international federation at the top. There's a continental federation that follows that within your continent and then the national association, a regional one, and it keeps going down to the local clubs. So for example, for football or soccer in your part of the world, FIFA was at the top. FIFA is the international federation. International federations administer the sport at a world level. They have the responsibility to manage and oversee their sport, administration, development, promotion, and events. What happened is, what evolved from, from that is organizations like the IOC and groups outside have made tools to help grade these organizations and give them resources to help them improve their governance. What do we look for in good governance? We look for good transparency, good democracy, that we have checks and balances, that we have social responsibility, that we have equity and diversity. We are holding the IS accountable to set the tone from the top. And they are setting out rules and code of conduct and codes of ethics and rules for the sport so they can hold people underneath them accountable. And if you don't, if you don't comply to these things, if you don't follow their rules and you don't follow their codes of ethics, you have punishments like fines, sanctions, bans, and those are also incentives to follow their rules. Now, with jujitsu, there are several issues that inhibit good governance, integrity, and ethical growth because we don't have 
in international federation. We don't have it. Our sport evolved in a different way. We actually have many international federations. So we have the IBJJF, we have the JJGF, we have the SJJIF, and those are just a few of them. So none of these organizations are actually really able to enforce any rules. They can't enforce any code of conduct, they can't enforce any code of ethics to jiu-jitsu outside of the events that they run. Our sport wasn't built that way. So we do have continental bodies. We have the European Grappling and Jiu-Jitsu Federation. We have the UAE JJF, but they don't answer to the international federations either. In fact, they're not even associated to them in most cases. And underneath continental in our countries, we don't have widespread national associations. Jiu-Jitsu is organized by affiliations and families. And you know, we've got the GB, ATOS, Checkmat, Alliance, a different structure. This isn't the only sport who has a structure like this skateboarding and surfing, whose cultures are similar to jiu-jitsu, also rose to prominence without any formal structure, although they're both now in the Olympics. Uh, CrossFit's another one. So the current international federations in jiu-jitsu, and I use air quotes for that, they can't tell jiu-jitsu clubs and affiliations what to do or how to run their businesses because they don't have any power. If the IBJJF, and I hate to single them out, but if they said, you can't compete here because you broke the rules and they tried to sanction an athlete or even an affiliation, it wouldn't have the same impact if the Olympics said, hey, Canada, you're banned. We don't recognize you anymore. And if we want to go a little bit deeper than that, if the IBJJF decided to ban, say, Alliance for their lack of diligence on a topic, how much money would they lose? And a lot of athletes, if we look at the athletes now, they don't even like competing in IBJJF. Many would be happily to stay in the Abu Dhabi Jiu-Jitsu Pro. And then we have a lot of affiliations and athletes who don't care about com competition at all. So how do you sanction them or incentivize them to follow your rules? This is a great point. And I agree with you totally because one of the interesting things about the power structure of the jujitsu landscape is it's almost like a bunch of tribal fiefdoms <laughs> with, with warlords that are competing for territory. There is no one governing body. There are teams, there are tournament bodies. But like you said, one of the weird things about them is that there isn't just one. It gives people the ability to jump from one to the other. And even for the tournament bodies that do exist, they either are very lax in in the enforcement of certain rules. I mean, Abu Dhabi famously does not even prohibit steroid use. Or in the case of the IBJJF, they may have so many conflicts of interest that it's very hard to take them seriously as a governing body. That probably the most recent and cogent example I can think of was when they banned members of BJJ Globetrotters from participating because they, they questioned the legitimacy of their black belts, which is garbage. I mean, the IBJJF's system for promoting people is no better than what BJJ Globetrotters does. The difference is that the IBJJF controls that system and they monetize that system. Mm -hmm. So the challenge I see with the IBJJF is that it feels like they're trying to own the promotion system and they're trying to monetize it. Yes. And that level of control is a powerful tool for them 
Robert Deagle is in IPJJF jail at the moment because due to a technicality, he is not recognized as a black belt, but they also will no longer recognize him as a brown belt. So he is unable to compete under the IPJJF tournament structure until sometime in 2022, which is ridiculous. You're taking an athlete in their prime years, an elite level grappler, and you're telling them that due to paperwork, they can't compete. No one questions that Robert Deagle is an awesome, legitimate black belt, but due to this paperwork technicality, he can't compete. And I really feel like this is just the IBJJF trying to enforce control over the promotion structure. And how much of that comes down to the fact that they monetize it? Yeah. And and the thing is, like, the promotion structure is just such a small, small piece of the puzzle, you know? Like, yeah, if we go just outside of jiu-jitsu into other sports, uh, just for a second, I'll go back to soccer just to keep it easy. Under the Olympic umbrella, Canada soccer, so Canada soccer can be punished. Team Canada can no longer go to the Olympic Games. And the state is kind of involved because Canadian sport gets funding from tax dollars. So Canada soccer is expected to abide by certain principles or the funding is cut. Those are incentives. Jiu-Jitsu has none of that. There is no reward for good behavior, no repercussion for bad behavior. And in reference to the IBJJF, and this is not just them, they, while they call themselves a federation, it isn't a real federation. You said it. They just, they're just focused on running events. They have no interest in developing the sport. They have no interest in overseeing the development of athletes. They do not aim to promote and contribute to the development of the sport. They have no mission to improve athlete rights. In fact, they have no mission at all. There's no mission, no vision, no values, no transparent strategy. While they might be one of the most recognizable federations, they do little for protecting and promoting the sport and the integrity of jiu-jitsu. Now, on the other end, we have the SJJIF. Their mission is to acquire recognition by the International Olympic Committee to get admittance into the Olympic Games. This means they have to meet certain requirements to be acknowledged by the IOC. So you can go to their website and you can see their objectives, which include an aim to promote, this is quotes right from the website, aims to promote, expand, organize, improve, regulate, and popularize worldwide the practice of jiu-jitsu in light of its educational, cultural, and sport values. So they have to abide by the Olympic Charter their code of conduct, their code of ethics, and all the good governance expectations to stay in good standing, to stay in good light. That's what skateboarding had to do and surfing to get recognized. It, it took them some work and the SJJIF is trying to get jujitsu there. So, however, the problem with that is, is they can't really enforce these things downward underneath them because they don't have worldwide recognition either from within the water jujitsu community as the top dog. So, and as an ethicist, when I look critically at are they actually meeting the IOC requirements when it comes to good governance, they aren't really there yet either. Because in light of this whole sexual harassment and abuse situation, one of the criteria that's been long put forward by the IOC is the establishment, no, not long, it's only been a few years, but long enough for the purpose of this topic of conversation, they, they ask for the establishment of a confidential reporting mechanism. So like a, a hotline for whistleblowers, for people to call in and report stuff. There isn't that with this organization. So 
Well, I know that the recent outpour has probably got their attention, and I expect that they are working to mobilize this. And our our agency has offered our services to them. At this point, there is minimum in place, minimum regarding safeguarding athletes from harassment and abuse. So when it comes to the current scandal, jiu-jitsu as a whole has limited resources to move forward ethically. There is no one incentivizing it and no one is really requiring it. So everything that involves furthering the sport, improving the sport, making it a safer space is exactly like you said. It's left in the hands of the affiliations to guide their affiliates under them or just to the, the solo owners of the local clubs to figure it out. And it's supposed to be the IFs who look over the sport and aim to ensure things are in place and followed so the sport can achieve uh, ethical growth. But we, we're we missing that. They also make sure that people are in power that deserve to be there, that the community is represented, women, people of color, people with different abilities. These are just examples of some of the barriers that would have helped the current situation be a little bit different. And it, yeah, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot to kind of take in and it's a lot to kind of think about when it comes to solving your problems, especially if you're just a local gym owner with no affiliation. Like how are you how are you going to move forward? It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. This is something that I've noticed with uh, some of the affiliations like Cyborgs and Hodger Gracies in response to the accusations against their their affiliations. They've set up their own report hotline, effectively. Mm -hmm. So you can I, I guess that if you are sexually abused under the fight sports banner, you can call Cyborg and you'll help to sort it out. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious there. I think it's an anonymous reporting line, <laughs> but I'm very skeptical about the ability for an organization to police themselves in this manner. I'm very skeptical that if you call the fight sports sexual abuse hotline, that they will be able to fully divest themselves of conflict of interest and investigate accordingly. I just don't believe they can do that because there's they're not able to independently separate themselves from themselves. So I You're totally right. This is something that's really bothered me about these statements that's come out from Cyborg and from Hodger where they say, "Look, if anything happens under our affiliation, send an email to us here at this address or call us at this number and we'll treat it anonymously and we'll investigate it." Look, if what I've seen in the past is any indication of how these <laughs> guys investigate these things, they're the last people I would want to talk to if I had a problem. I mean, we had Andrew Wiltsey on the podcast and he, he made fun of them for even offering this, right? He said, look, go to the police. <laughs> if, if there was a crime that took place here, don't call Cyborg and try to <laughs> and let him take care of it. <laughs> go to the police. Now, in an ideal world, there is an independent governing watchdog body that you could go to. But many of the leadership bodies that we do have, like you mentioned, they're either not fully in charge or they are entwined in so many personal conflicts of interest <laughs> that they simply cannot be trusted to make the decision that is right, even if they want to and try to. You just cannot separate, for example, the IBJJF from Gracie Baja. You, can, <laughs> you cannot say if you had a legitimate complaint against someone from Gracie Baja, would you be comfortable calling the IBJJF to take care of it, knowing that it all funnels up to the same person. It's just not an independent watchdog organization. And we don't have that in this sport. Honestly, I, I'm glad you brought this up. And well, I can kind of say it was interesting, nice, or laughable to see people come forward and say, hey, we have a hotline. 
I cringe. I cringe because like you, you nail, you hit the head on the nail. The, the trustworthiness of reporting lines depends on the ability of a club or a gym to demonstrate that reporting wrongdoings can be done safely and that it will lead to action. And if the leadership of a club has been or has been perceived to have been involved with wrongdoings, no one is going to report to you. Like lack of trust at the top, confidentiality issues, potential instructor perpetrators. These are all reasons that you cannot run these services in-house this close. It has to be a reliable external partner. Reports of alleged wrongdoing need to be handled impartially by people who have the required competence and have the necessary training. So on the Sports Ethics Examiner website, on our Instagram, actually, there is a document, a resource free for people to look at. It's how to earn your black belt in building a safer ethical gym. And one of the things that I talk about is five degrees of diligent reporting lines for jiu-jitsu. And, you know, the the people that are trying to take this stuff in from the inside, it is just, they're missing the point. What we recommend is if you if you're very serious about making a reporting line and doing this duty to your members and to try to build a safer space, you need to link up with a qualified, registered mental health professional in your area. So a psychotherapist, a social worker, a sports psychologist, a trauma therapist who can partner with your gym, your club, your affiliation for a reporting line. There is likely nonprofit professionals in your area who do this type of outreach services in your community. Now, these are certified professionals who are far better equipped than Mr. Black Belt, uh, whoever, to give survivors and victims and people access to appropriate resources. That could be psychological support, law enforcement, legal avenues. They are the ones who are fit to provide this advice, unbiased, confidential, and gender-sensitive not you. Like, stick to what you're good at. This is not, this is not your area. Like, it's time to involve external people to remove that conflict of interest and move forward in a practical and effective way. And I think it's probably worth pointing out, too, that the psychotherapist or counselor who is providing the service to you cannot actually train at your gym. <laughs> I, I think that's probably worth pointing out because I know that I know that in the jujitsu world, we do a lot of skill swapping. And the first thing that's going to come to a lot of people's minds is, well, you know, we train Jennifer trains here. She's one of my blue belts and she's a therapist. Well, no, you can't you can't have a true avoidance of conflict of interest if the anonymous reporting hotline person actually trains under you. That is not going to solve the problem. If you are a white belt or a black belt and you are a therapist, <laughs> you cannot be providing these services in your gym. Yeah. I, 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 it's sad that we have to mention that, but yes, you need, you need external, unbiased, professional help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also making these actions and communicating these these steps. So if you if you have never had a code of conduct, if you've never had a code of ethics, if you are thinking about putting in a reporting line and you you're making these steps, these things are huge in improving transparency in your organization and and building 
trust. Mm-hmm. That is so important in shifting a culture, especially the culture that's going on in jiu-jitsu. Well, let me ask you a question here, because something that I get is a lot of pushback whenever an accusation is levied against someone for wrongdoing is they will say, They'll say something to the effect of, well, he was never actually charged with a crime. Or if he was charged, they'll say, well, he wasn't actually convicted of a crime. Or in some cases, they'll say, well, what he did that, you know, yeah, he he, he creeped on women, but he never actually assaulted them. So it's OK. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that we need to hold our athletes to a higher standard than did he do jail time? <laughs> I mean, oh. obviously, if someone did jail time, if someone was convicted of a felony and went to jail for it, then, yes, that should be that should bar them from training with us or teaching at a gym or holding any position of power. But even beyond that... And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't, and I can give examples. But even beyond that, I would argue that if we want this sport to represent the best of us, we have to have a higher standard of conduct than, well, you know, he didn't go to jail for it, so therefore we need to treat him like he's innocent. And I see this a lot where when people are accused of things, there's massive pushback, and they say, you can't ruin this person's life because of uh, just a few unproven allegations. I mean, look, we need to have a different standard of care for how we operate in civil society versus what we do at the criminal level. If you're going to put someone in jail, there needs to be a very, very high standard of proof to put someone in jail and take away their freedom. But we need to have a a different standard for how we interact in society and how we keep our sport clean. And simply saying, well, he wasn't convicted of a crime, I think is way too low a bar. I mean, if you went to a gym and you were going to put your kid in there and they said, hey, just so you know, our kid's instructor, he was charged on two occasions with pedophilia. But good news He wasn't actually convicted, but we just want to let you know he was charged. So um, can you give us your credit card so we can put your kid in? You're going to get out of there, right? We need to hold our our instructors to a higher standard at the civil level than we use when it comes to criminal behavior. And and I feel like that's a massive misconception and and error in the way that we enforce good conduct in jujitsu is we basically a lot of the times say, well, the bar to clear is, have you been convicted of a crime? And I think that bar is not nearly sufficient enough. No, it's not. And we don't use that in other sports because exactly it needs to be more bigger than that. And it needs to go beyond that. So integrity is a topic that has certainly gained a lot of global attention in recent years, especially in sport. But people have a lot of confusion over what that means. So people will say, oh, it's doping stuff. Oh, it's match fixing. Oh, it's athlete rights. Oh, it's diversity. Some people use it to talk about corruption and they're not wrong, but it's much broader than that. It's a three prong approach. Sport integrity looks at three areas. It's one, personal integrity, Are you doing the right thing through your words and actions and beliefs when no one is watching? Two, it's competition integrity. So, for example, protecting the sport from things like doping and match fixing. And three, the integrity of the organizations. So, while they may have, while a person may not have committed any crimes per se, it's up to you within your sporting club, organization, business, to set the tone from the top, you need to develop your code of conduct and your code of ethics and decide the values that your club stands for. You need to spend time 
to communicate them well and often to your members and community and hold yourself and, t- and team accountable to, to meeting them. And that's an important thing about transparency. When you say it and you shout it to your community, to the Instagram world, to social media, to your sponsors, you are putting yourself also on the spotlight. What they do in judo, which I find might be interesting because, you know, obviously they're very related in their disciplinary code. So this is the, this is right on the rules of the International Judo Federation. Anything that is contrary to the moral or ethical or sporting spirit of judo that affects its image and reputation and the failure to comply with the rules defined within the Olympic family in terms of all of this stuff is subject to sanctioning. And if you go on the I, on the IJF website, they have a moral code. They have a moral code that you are obligated to uphold. So maybe you didn't commit a crime, but what exists in the moral code? Okay, we got self-control. We got politeness, honor, friendship, modesty, respect, and courage. So if, if anyone can come forward and challenge you on these things, you can be sanctioned. You don't have to commit a crime because you are not acting in a way that represents judo and the judo community and how it wants to be represented in the world. And the same thing should exist for jiu-jitsu. Yeah, the interesting thing I find about the jiu-jitsu world, and I have friends who cross-train both judo and jiu-jitsu at high levels, and so it is interesting to hear about this comparison and to see it in action, because judo is, I mean, it's a, it's an internationally federated sport, it's an Olympic-level sport, it's much more mature mm-hmm. in terms of its power structure than jiu-jitsu is, mm-hmm. and it's been interesting to see, especially over the last year plus with the pandemic, to see how the two different communities have responded at a high level. I mean, jujitsu comes across as a bunch of unregulated backwater conspiracy theorists, honestly, (laughs) whereas judo, I mean, I'm not going to say that judo is the pinnacle of what you want a sport to be, but they're way more professional in terms of the way that they deal with crisis and the way that they, they treat their community and in terms of how they enforce things. And you would expect that because they are an Olympic sport. They are regulated at that level. And the difference is completely apparent to anyone who, who sees it out of the, you know, out of the gate. And I do feel the pain of someone who wants to do the right thing as a jiu-jitsu gym because, like you said, they can't just join an international jiu-jitsu federation that will solve these problems for them because no such thing exists presently. So if as a small gym, Mm -hmm. you want to build a gym with the utmost care and the utmost moral integrity, mm-hmm. you have work to do because you can't just join the register under this affiliation. No. You have to actually set up your own code of conduct. You have to vet any affiliation that you want to join. You probably need to set up independent governance. Not, that's not cheap, right? So there's a lot of things that you have to do if you really care about the stuff. Whereas in judo, the structure exists and people can just bolt their gym right onto it. So I think that's a, a marked difference that you see. Jiu-jitsu is... And this is maybe just part of the culture of jujitsu. It's very casual, right? Jujitsu, you can't even get people mm-hmm. to show up to class on time, including the instructor in a lot of jujitsu gyms, <laughs> let alone get them to follow a code of conduct. So I I know that that casual atmosphere is part of the unique character of jujitsu. And one of the reasons, honestly, why I think people love it. But at the end of the day, sometimes it does lead to a lack of discipline on matters that are really important. Absolutely. And I kind of touched on that and a little bit in the beginning is that, 
Yeah, there are other sports as well. I mentioned surfing and skateboarding who, who came from that similar kind of carefree, no rules culture and, and they've evolved. And people thought that skateboarding could never be formalized, that surfing could never be formalized. And I mean, they just, in this last Olympics, they had their debut and, you know, that is creating a lot of positive doorways for a lot of people, more accessibility, more inclusivity, and, and a safer space because they have that umbrella of being under the Olympic family that we are missing. Now, the Olympic route is not necessarily the only route to go to, to deal with this problem. This can be dealt with, like a lot of changes happen at the community level. The community level, just in our neighborhoods, we can make such a huge push forward without having to go that way. And it really starts with, you know, setting the the tone from the top. You know, yes, you have to develop a code of conduct. You have to do the work, a code of ethics. Decide your values. Like, why are you doing jiu-jitsu if you are a business owner or you're a black belt? What, what values do you want attached to your name and your club? Like, what do you stand for? You know, the, the first action you can do is sit down with your with your team, your management, your 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 higher belts and, and discuss this and then spend time to write it out and communicate it to your members and to your community. And that's kind of what I'm saying is or what I has mentioned that when you make that first step, yes, it's work. And yes, it's hard for a small gym to do it. But you are holding yourself accountable to meet those standards. And that sets a strong foundation because rules need to be set in order to be met. And a cultural shift in jiu-jitsu to a safer and more ethical space requires a united understanding of the rules and also the importance of dealing with these threats. And when you have awareness of the rules and everyone then can adopt a more serious understanding of the risks around them and what's expected of them in the space and what members can expect from leadership and from each other. That's just one small step clubs can do that it doesn't cost you anything. It's communication. Yeah. It doesn't cost you a cent. It's where where it's going to cost you is when it comes time to enforce. And this is where I think the character of the instructor and the leaders really is shown and sometimes unfortunately falters is it's one thing to put mm -hmm. that code of conduct up on the wall. And it's another thing when something goes wrong to enforce it. A saying that I always love is that integrity means adhering to your principles, even when they don't work in your favor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you see this a lot in jujitsu where people will say things like, oh, you know, well, it's all about doing the right thing and stopping the bad guys and blah, 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 blah. But as soon as their best buddy is accused of something bad, immediately they try to cover it up and run to their defense or just do nothing and hope it goes away. And so I would argue that's a lack of integrity. Integrity only means something if you still apply that standard when it doesn't benefit you, right? And I see that in the jiu-jitsu community, you get a lot of these like macho wannabe dudes who are always talking about the importance of being the alpha male and protecting the sheep and all of that. But as soon as the time comes for them to actually protect their flock, if there's consequences to themselves, they won't do it. And that's that's a very unfortunate thing that I see a lot in jiu-jitsu. And that, that to me is the gold standard, right? You mm -hmm. can put the code of conduct up on your website or up on your wall, but what happens? when one of your closest friends violates that code? Do you hold them accountable or do you hope that if you just avoid the situation, it will go away? What do you do when the integrity of the situation, like, like how do you deal with this, right? 
Do you have the integrity to hold yourself and your team accountable when something goes sideways? Yeah, and that's such a, a good point. But it, you know, it comes down to. <laughs> I don't even think it's a matter of if you have integrity at this point, it's do you have balls? <laughs> I hate to make it so colloquial, but it's it's true because what side of history, what side of the current situation, what side of jitsu do you want to be on? The side that is contributing to complacency or the side that is con contributing to change, to better? Like what kind of leader do you want to be? Like you, when you own a business, when you want to be a diligent leader and a true leader, it's going to take you making some difficult decisions. But you know what? <laughs> those, those decisions are going to be the ones that make or break you because the numbers that we're seeing don't lie. People are upset and they've spoken and they're unhappy. So is you favoring or protecting that one person worth the risk of what you could lose because you could lose it all. It's, it's a financial risk, a reputation risk, a legal risk, a community risk, a safety risk. Like, are you willing to put that all on the line for one person? You know, it's, it's just bizarre that people don't look at the long-term, not only consequences, but the long-term opportunities. This is an opportunity to step up and do the right thing as a leader and think about what that means for you, your teammate, your school, your brand, your sport, your sponsors. You know, like a lot of people think that I have to protect this person. It's a risk. He, he, he's my friend or, or, or whatever. But <laughs> look at the big picture. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are really stuck in tunnel vision and can't see beyond that. But if you want to be a leader in this world, if you want to be a successful business owner in this world... Man, it's time to take off, uh, take off the, I don't know, black goggles and like look at the bigger picture of what's happening around you because you will be made irrelevant. Well, l let me ask you a, a hard question then. I mean, I, I would hope that this has been a persuasive argument and that most people agree that we should try to clean up the sport, especially if we ever have any grand ambitions of this thing being bigger than it is. I would love to see us get to the point where we're on the world stage, just like judo, just like wrestling. That would be fantastic. So assuming this has been persuasive and people are listening to this and saying, yeah, I'm on board and presuming they do the best they can at their own individual level to put together their own code of conduct and to have that enforced independently. What do we do in terms of a governing body? Because I think we've demonstrated here that it's going to be very hard to solve any problems without a legitimate governing body. What can the average jujitsu practitioner on the ground do to help move that needle towards a world where we actually have that? Because it seems like such a massive unsolvable problem. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that a, a governing body, a wider governing body is the only solution. It is certainly a solution, but I don't think that not having one should be an excuse that we sit back. So, you know, what is the role of our current federations or the, the event runners? What is the role of the clubs and the athletes? Like, as I mentioned, it's everyone's duty to, to deal with integrity and to move forward and to future-proof their businesses, to create a safer space and a more accessible space. So I guess for the federations that exist now, the event owners, I certainly think we should turn to them to the organizations like the IBJJF and others who have made a enough money on the sport and ask them to do better. They can do things like 
take better action to ban members who have been reported for misconduct. They can do better to provide their own clear values and code of ethics or code of conduct that's accessible for everyone to do their part in addressing the culture. They can vet better their judges and officials, and they can include pathways for more women to grow into these spaces. It's quite common for event owners to have doping regulation and general rules discussed at events, these athlete meetings before tournaments. There is no reason that there cannot be an integrity briefing where athletes are reminded of the values of jiu-jitsu that they are representing here on this stage and remind them of signs and signals and symptoms of harassment and abuse and where they can go for help and where they can go to report things. And coming to the reporting line, since there is no one, no, no one uh, for accountability above these organizations, one solution might be that we require them to also have a reporting line where people can tip off concerns in their gym if their gym isn't making these type of steps with their own reporting lines. So one solution might be that these concerns that would be tipped off would be made transparent confidentially. And if that's, if that's what the person wants, so that we can see what is actually going on. And then we can let the accountability happen within the sport. So this, is, this would be like a more united jiu-jitsu global effort. So we're kind of seeing that happen now with the who, what, when, where, what can we do? Do we blacklist someone? Do we need to compile more community evidence? Do we need to report them to the authorities? So how can we stop them from going into other events and other sports? You know, we can address this as a community too. So if we were going to involve the federations, that would be a few different options of how we could move forward. Interesting. Interesting. What do you feel? Because one of the things you talked about was anonymity, which I can totally see the importance of. There are a lot of people who have experienced bad conduct in jujitsu were not able to get a satisfactory resolution and therefore took to social media. And I understand the desperation that leads to something like that and the desire to have justice. And I think it's important that that happened because there are a lot of stories that have been suppressed or covered up that we wouldn't even know about if not for the fact that the victim had the courage to speak up. Mm-hmm. But I also do understand the counter argument, which is that mobs on social media are usually not the best place to adjudicate who's guilty and who's innocent. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what we can do to, if if we want to report something and we're not getting a satisfactory resolution through the bodies that exist, what do you suggest someone do in that situation to bring justice and shed light on the situation? Well, if, if clubs or affiliations or your own local gym is not in the process or does not have a reporting line. And this IBJJF reporting line doesn't exist. And you need to go out public. Honestly, that is how it has to be at this point. And the reason is that we need, we need more awareness. We need consistent awareness. That, that unfortunately is the biggest thing to make a pivot to force a pivot, to make people aware and want to change. I mean, social media has given power to stakeholders and people, consumers who have never had power before. It has been able to unite people. 
And that has so much influence. And that in, in terms of jujitsu and moving forward, this, this snowball is rolling and it's rolling really hard. Awareness and consistent conversation and dialogue is the first step to moving forward. Like these conversations are important and you know, it's going to make people talk. It's going to make people look inside their gyms. It's going to make people look at their teammates. It's going to make them think twice of when they see stuff, you know, like if things just keeps in the shadows, no one's going to understand or no one's going to see the problem. Like they didn't know this was a problem for so long. Many, I'm using quotation marks, many didn't know there was a problem because it was just swept under the rug or people were kind of scared into silence. But now social media has has given survivors and victims a platform to unite together and to get support. And now we're making waves. So definitely this continuous conversation and dialogue is so important. It is a key step to facilitating change. And that kind of comes into, okay, I know now, or we think we know what federations could do what can athletes do? So when it comes to dealing with integrity, specifically this abuse situation in jiu-jitsu, the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. We know the problem is that solutions have to be implemented and be seen to be implemented. So if you are an athlete, you know, you also have a responsibility. And, you know, three things that you can do as an athlete. Number one, call out violence in your club. And online, when you see it, a big part of our community is online, you know, with seminars and and magazines and, and people doing, you know, coaching, or PT and videos and subscriptions. So make it socially unacceptable in the places that you occupy. If you see something as an athlete, say something. When this situation isn't dealt with, it just continues to allow aggressive toxic, hypersexual, and just bad attitudes. The second thing you can do if you're an athlete is champion females who want to lead, who you think would be a good leader. That could be a coaches, could be into judging, could be into instructing, it could be into the, the management in the gym. Give them your genuine support. Everyone knows how it feels like to have people in their corner. That is you cannot underestimate the impact that, that that has athlete to athlete. And the third thing you can do as an athlete is to also champion good leaders, the real deal leaders, not, not, not these fake macho ones that you were mentioning earlier. More than ever, people are watching and using social media to mobilize power, like I said, and share demands to the businesses and organizations. So, we are uniting, we are naming and shaming, and we're protesting, but we also can enthusiastically celebrate positive action. So for every scandal that's going on and every bullshit, you know, situation that is coming to the surface, we can share who is doing the opposite. Let's share who's doing the work to curb it. Let's shame those who have chosen to stay behind and be complacent, but let's put the leaders into the spotlight. Basically, like your words and actions as an athlete, as an athlete ally, do have an impact to protect people and to help create a stronger culture, a safer culture, and a more ethical space with an improved reputation that much better aligns to jiu-jitsu values. Imperative. I agree completely. 
You know what my fear is, especially after the last few months, because I think to some extent I'm already starting to see it, is I I fear activism fatigue and I fear the argument that Mm -hmm. we should shut up and train and not focus on this stuff and move on past it. And I don't know if you read that awesome study by um, the anonymous person Valkyrie BJJ about sexual abuse in jujitsu. But that study was specifically called Shut Up and Train. And I suspect a big part of the reason why was because that is a predominant attitude amongst a lot of grapplers. They don't want to hear about anything but the actual mechanics of jujitsu. They want to go in. They want to train. They don't want to hear about the CD behavior. That's not why they're involved. They don't want to hear about activism. They think it's a bunch of virtue signaling or social justice warriors. I I think a lot of people just hope that this is just a fad that goes away and that people stop talking about it. But I think what is imperative is that we don't stop talking about it, that we continue to talk about it. Mm -hmm. There also seems to be this weird perception I've noticed ever since, you know, the taking a knee thing in the NFL, there seems to be this weird perception that athletes should just shut up and do athletics and that they have no business being advocates for anything. And I I have always found that to be kind of weird because athletics and advocacy have been intertwined as far back as I can remember. I mean, it's not a new thing that an athlete would use their stance to do social good or to fight for a cause they believe in. That's not a new thing at all. And I do fear that people will use that argument and they'll say, well, jujitsu should just be about jujitsu and it should be, it shouldn't be about taking an activist stance or any of this. It should just be about sparring. My concern with that is that is sweeping very serious problems that we all acknowledge exist. I hope it's sweeping them under the rug. If we just say, shut up and train. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is that people like seem to forget is that athletes are humans first. They're humans first. And, and you can't ask someone to turn off a huge a part of their life, whether it's sexism, racism, ableism, all these different types of things and intersections that may be causing harm in their life. You can't ask them to shut that off. And when people say, oh, we should only train and jujitsu should only be jujitsu and we should leave this politics out of sport. There has always been politics in sport. There's always going to be issues in sport. Sport is uh, something we say in ethics is that sport is a reflection of society. So the problems that we see on the outside world, abuse, racism, nepotism, corruption, they don't stop at the door of sport. So, I mean, on the other hand, that means that the good stuff goes through the doors too. We just need to continue to make those good doors more accessible within our community and let the others know that they're not welcome here anymore. And neither is the ignoring and complacency around these integrity issues. Fantastic. Well, we covered a lot today, Whitney. Is there anything that you wanted to get into that we didn't cover? Any closing thoughts? No, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess I can say that If you genuinely are a gym owner, whether you are under an affiliate or not, and especially if you are just like a lone, a lone wolf out there, because we know those clubs exist and you want to make a safer and more ethical gym. If you go on Instagram on the sports ethics examiner, we have a free kind of ebook or carousel that you can swipe through of steps that you can make that you can action that cost zero dollars to actually make a a effective 
and immediate change in your space. And that includes how to also move forward with a reporting line if that's something that you're thinking about. So that is that is there for you as a resource to move forward. In addition to that, our agency is offering to help out three gyms who might message us or who, who want to message us to work with us for some help in this area. We will extend that out to the community around the world. We are operating in five different continents. We speak eight different languages. So we, we are really committed to helping the jiu-jitsu community move forward in a more safer, ethical, and accessible way to uphold the values that we we all love and we all want to champion in jiu-jitsu. So again, if you want to reach us, that's the sport, sports ethics examiner on Instagram. You can reach out and we are we're here to help you. So if we're putting the door open to three gyms, three clubs, three affiliates, three affiliations, doesn't matter. We will try to help you work through this and help you become a leader in this new you know, this new wave of moving forward. Awesome. And of course, if you want to reach out to me, learn more about what we do, the best place to do that is the website, bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a contact form as well as links to us on social. We're pretty active there. So a good way to get a hold of us. Also to check out all the back catalog episodes and our big database of concepts, get on the newsletter, lots of stuff you can do there. And of course, if you want to check out our premium experience, the way to do that is premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we keep all of our courseware content, our direct coaching content. If you like the stuff that you hear on the show and you want to work directly with us and our community to apply it to your game, that's the best place to do it, to join premium. Again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a free trial, money back guarantee. doesn't hurt to give it a shot. So I ask that if you like the show and you find the stuff useful, please do consider doing that. Whitney, thank you again so much for coming by and and for having this very important conversation. It's awesome to be able to talk about this stuff to someone who studies and works with these problems on a daily basis, because I think within the world now of jujitsu, we're starting to get a better handle on the fact that these are real problems that we need to solve if we want to see the sport grow to the next level. But I also think that most people are just not equipped to do that. So any awareness that we can drive to tools like yours are extremely helpful to the grappler. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I I also applaud you for keeping the conversation going because obviously sometimes the dialogue can fizzle. Things are happening in our communities with COVID and back to school and and things kind of might fade out and we can't let that happen. And I really appreciate it. I know the community appreciates people like you using your platform, using your stance and using your voice to really be a, a solid ally. And not only for women in the sport, but for the future of the sport and for the legacy of the sport. So that's, you know, well done. It's really well done. Thanks. I, I greatly appreciate it. And, you know, hey, for every one hate mail message I get from some weird steroid using incel who's upset about, <laughs> about talking about this stuff, I get about a 100 other messages from men and women around the world who are glad that this stuff is being talked about. And they're hoping that now, finally, we can see some action. So if I can be a part of that in any way, I'm happy to do so. But again, thank you to you, of course, and to all of our listeners, as always, I really do appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you guys next week.